Now, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn to that last passage that we read in Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, reading again at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, or as I mentioned in the reading, the meaning there is not having received the things promised, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So having seen the promises afar off, they were assured of them, they embraced them, and they confessed that they themselves were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now there are uh, some texts in the Bible that I and maybe many other preachers uh, return to from time to time because of their importance, their intrinsic importance, or maybe their suitability for particular times and seasons. And this is one of these texts. And the reason this text itself is so worth coming back to and memorizing, recalling from time to time, is because it gives the best and the fullest description of saving faith that I think you can find anywhere in the Bible. Now, there are various places where faith is described, but here you have a description and a definition wrapped up in the one verse. If someone was to ask you, well, where really can I get a description of what saving faith is, you could point them to this verse because it really does contain it all. Now, when I say a description or a definition of saving faith, I mean, of course, saving faith, the faith that saves. There are kinds of faith that don't save. There is only one kind of faith that does. Um, perhaps the best known example of a, a faith that doesn't faith saves the faith that demons have. James tells us in his letter that the devils believe and they tremble. Uh, certainly the devils believe in the existence of God. They believe in the reality of heaven and hell and many other things. And we're told that their belief in these things is of such a nature that they tremble accordingly. So it's not a, an intellectual faith alone that the demons possess. It is a faith or a belief that makes their hearts tremble in fear because of the terror of the Lord whom they know to be true. But uh, that's not, of course, a belief or a faith that saves the saving faith of which the Bible speaks and of which this text speaks is just the faith that belongs to all of God's people, to those who are saved. So, of course, it's vitally important that we understand what kind of faith that really is. How does it affect your mind and how does it affect your heart? So what is that saving faith? And, of course, coming to a communion is a particularly good time to ask this question. Um, you may wonder from time to time whether you have faith or whether the faith that you have is the faith that saves. Is it the faith that actually gives you a warrant to come forward and to sit with the Lord's people at the Lord's table to take the elements of bread and wine? Is that for you or is it not for you? So these kind of texts and an understanding of these kind of texts is very, very important. Now the chapter, as you know, and as I mentioned, is full of examples of people who had this saving faith. And the writer uh, gives examples of how this saving faith worked itself out in their lives. They received a word from God, they responded with saving faith and therefore they did certain things you'll notice that real saving faith always does something it's always productive it reveals itself in works 
So saving faith hears God speaks, um, believes that speech, and responds accordingly in obedience. So they heard God speak. There can't be any faith without that. People speak of faith being blind, but biblical faith isn't blind at all. Biblical faith is a response to evidence. It's a response to God revealing himself. A God who speaks and a God who makes particular promises. Uh, That kind of thing is brought before us, for example, in um, verse 6 of the chapter here, which is speaking about Enoch, one of the great men of faith in the past. We're told that he had faith because, in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, so certainly faith must believe in the existence of God, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, not only uh, does faith believe in his existence, but faith believes that there is a reward in seeking him. In other words, if you look for a relationship with him, a real relationship with God, there is a reward annexed to that. You will find a reward that God is faithful to his speech, that he is faithful to his promises. So faith isn't blind in that way at all. Whatever faith is, it's a response to the God who has spoken and who has, of course, promised things. Now, in the Bible, we have a record of what God promises. Um, And I suppose if you were to sum these up, you would say that right from the beginning, from the beginning of creation, really, from the book of Genesis, what God has promised, essentially, is eternal life uh, through a saviour. This eternal life is a life that he gives which actually delivers from our state of sin and misery, condemnation. He delivers from that with a life that shall never end. And um, that deliverance from death and deliverance into life is a deliverance into life in all its fullness. It's a life that's defined really in the Bible by fellowship with God. knowing him, and knowing him in the bond of fellowship, knowing him in the experience of fellowship with him. That is the promise, that is the promise that is given by God from Genesis chapter 3 right through to the end of Scripture. Now in the Old Testament and in the life of these patriarchs, you'll notice that God's promise seems to focus on two things. It focuses first on a city, Now, Abraham knew, of course, what a city was. Sarah knew what a city was. They had come from uh, perhaps the finest city of its day, the city of Ur in the district that's now referred to as Sumer. That is still being investigated. It's a highly advanced city. I remember mentioning to my previous congregation that that Abraham and Sarah would have had a flushing toilet uh, in their home, and they, because of his wealth and substance, well, he had three hundred, over three hundred private soldiers in his own army. Um, he was in a very advanced civilization, in a very advanced city. But that's not the city that he looked for, and the passage here goes to great lengths to tell us that he's not looking for that kind of city. So did the psalm that we sang which tells us of God's people coming from north, south, east and west, finding themselves strangers and pilgrims, no city to rest in. They're they're not at home in any man-made city. And they're not at home in any man-made city because the psalmist tells us, and this passage tells us too, they're looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now, every city... Uh, humanly speaking, has foundations. They're all built on foundations, but this means real foundations. In verse 10, we're told that Abraham, while he lived in a tent, essentially, I'm I'm sure it was an ornate tent, but nonetheless, when he lived in a tent, he was waiting for the city 
which has foundations, not humanistic foundations. Any city that is built on humanistic foundations like Babel or Babylon will be destroyed eventually. It may rise, it may flourish for a time, but it has the judgment of God written upon it, and like Babel or like Babylon, it will fall. The only city that has real foundations is the city that, well, God is making. Notice that in verse 10, Abraham was waiting for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. These are two interesting words. In the Greek, the word builder is the word uh, from which you get technical. It actually carries the idea of being an architect as well as a builder. The second word, maker, is actually the word that corresponds more to builder. So the first word is a designer and a craftsman, an artisan. The second word is simply a builder. In other words, the city that God makes is a city that he's planned, he's designed, and he's building himself hands-on. That, of course, is a reference to the New Jerusalem, which is being built, I was going to say brick by brick, but person by person, uh, by God in glory above. A city that he has prepared for his people. That is the city that the Old Testament saints were looking to, and of course it is the city that we are looking to as well. Now, the, the Bible again goes to great lengths, or God goes to great lengths to assure us that what Abraham is looking for, or was looking for, is essentially the same thing that we're looking for today as well. It tells us that when he left Ur, he was looking for another city. It tells us that even when he arrived in the land of Canaan, he knew that that was not his final destination. Yes, it was the promised land in earthly terms, but he knew himself that it was only a symbol with its milk and honey of a better country in which the better city was being built. And that, of course, is something that's emphasized for us as well. Um, in verse 15, if, if they had called to mind, if Abraham or Sarah had remembered that country from which they had come out, now of course they remembered it, but call to mind brings looking back, harking back, wanting back. If, if they did that, if they called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, of course. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's a will backwards as well as a will forwards. If, if you really want to go back to the world, there's a way to go back to the world. But, he says in verse 16, they didn't want to go back. Neither do you, Christian friend. I mean, the, the devil may come. As I'm sure he sometimes came to them and said, well, do you remember her? No, they did remember her. But, of course, they now desire a better country. That is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And these patriarchs knew that, that there was a better country, of which Canaan was only a type or a shadow. And in that country, there was a better city, and that God himself, the great king, was at the heart of that city. It was prepared for them. And one by one, they are being taken home into that city. So that's the first thing that was at the center of the promise. A, a city, a permanent city. God is its architect and its builder. And it has foundations of truth, righteousness and holiness. The second element in the promise, of course was a saviour. That promise was first given in Genesis 9, sorry, in Genesis chapter 3, and it's right at the heart of all God's dealings with his people subsequently. You, you don't understand anything that God does with his people unless you take that promise to the heart of it, that one day a child will be born who has the power to trample upon the serpent and who will release all of God's people from the power of sin and death. And by so doing, he will translate us 
into the eternal city of God. Without a saviour, none of that is possible. And whatever this saviour does, it's obvious from scripture and from Genesis 3 right at the beginning that his fundamental act is to get rid of sin. When poor Adam and Eve fell and they were naked before God and tried to clothe themselves, failed miserably, and then tried to hide behind the trees of the garden and failed miserably, God showed them a way of sacrifice by killing an animal, shedding its blood and clothing themselves with the skin of it. The first sacrifice, a powerful symbol of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the righteous standing that he gives us a result. That's reflected in the clothing. Our own clothing, filthy rags. God's provision, a perfect garment. And with that, they'll get their way back into the garden. They'll get back into fellowship with God. And for all these years before the flood, they were there coming to worship and seeing God who would admit them into a city and clothe them in his own righteousness again. So Abraham waited for the city and he waited for the Savior, the Savior who would bring them to God's city and into everlasting fellowship with himself. Now, of course, God calls them to believe these promises I'll, I'll turn to the meaning of that in a moment. I mean, that's what it's all about. I mean, you, you want to know, well, what is it to believe all that? What is it to have saving faith in connection with this city or saving faith in connection with this Savior? What, what does all that mean? But for now, let's just understand that God called them to believe these promises and if they simply believed them, God would fulfill them all on their behalf. He would grant them eternal life beginning now and ripening in glory. That's why the great covenant promises are. I mean, if you were to ask, what what are the great covenant promises that God gives to his people? Well, they are simply, I will be your God, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's all in that. Believe this, he says. Believe what I am telling you, the way of salvation, and what salvation is, And I, on my part, will be your God. Absolutely so, now and forever, because I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And so by believing, that eternal life was theirs. Well, what exactly does that believing involve then? Well, that's where the text helps us, because after giving us all these examples... He seems to sum it up and to wrap it up in a text that that really shows us how they responded to God's promises. We're told that these people died in faith. They died still believing because they hadn't yet received the promises. Now, what that means is that they hadn't received the things promised. They hadn't yet received the city Neither yet had they seen the birth of the Saviour. But they died still believing in the reality of that city and in the reality of the birth of that Saviour that was still to come. Sometimes we speak about getting the promises like that. Suppose you had a promise, for example, that you would have a child. Suppose God, like he gave Sarah a promise that uh, you will have a child. Now, If you came to Sarah after her birth and you said to her, I hear that you received the promise. Now by that you would mean the thing that was promised. She had got the promise long ago. But if you came to her after the birth and said, I hear you got the promise. What you're saying is, I hear you got the thing promised. That's what this means here. They died in faith, not having got the things, but still believing the things. They had them promised. And therefore, they believed that God would bring them to the city and would do so through the Saviour. So this is how they respond. Having seen the promises afar off, that's our text, 
Let's read it carefully. These died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them afar off. That's number one. Then number two, they were assured of them. Number three, they embraced the promises. And number four, they confessed then that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So saving faith has these four elements in it. Seeing, assurance, embracing and confessing. I want to say a word uh, about all of these. First of all, they saw the promises afar off. They saw them at a distance. The reason they were at a distance is because it turns out they were at a considerable distance from them. I mean, Abraham couldn't have known that it would be about another 2,000 years before this child of promise was going to be born. In some ways, it doesn't matter whether it was 10 years or 2,000 years. It's still in the future. It's still an unseen thing. But we're told that faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the conviction of things that you can't see yet because you trust the one who told you. I mentioned earlier that faith isn't blind. It's important to qualify that or explain it. Biblical faith does ask you to believe certain things that you can't see, but you believe them on the authority of something you know. For example, if you, if you trust your father, let's say, and your father has always behaved in a trustworthy way towards you, he has uh, shown you things, promised you certain things, he's disciplined you in kindness, he's shown love and comfort... Then if 20 years down the road your father asks you to believe such and such a thing, uh, you still can't see it and it hasn't come about, it's something he's going to do for you, well, you believe it. Do you have evidence to believe it? Yes. What kind of evidence do you have? The character of your father whom you know. And that character of your father whom you know gives you warrant to believe that what he says he will do. Now, all that's heightened in connection with God. God gives us an assurance of certain things, certainly, that we can't see and know. But we believe these things on the basis that we have come to know himself and his character. We have come to know his faithfulness in his own word. And these lead us to trust more and more in connection with things that we haven't yet experienced and the things that we don't yet know. So in that connection, we believe what we do not see. But we do so on the basis that we know whom we have believed. We know his character and his kindness and his faithfulness. Now here Abraham sees promises regarding the birth of a saviour and a heavenly country to come. Promises that are still afar off. They're still at a distance. But he sees them. Just as you see them. You know... I, in some form today, am preaching to you regarding Christ and salvation and heaven and glory. Even a cross in the past that you can't see and a heaven in the future that you can't see. But you're to see them. Faith means that you see them. And the first part of seeing, without confusing the figure, is hearing. Hearing. Faith comes by hearing. And as I said earlier, faith is a response to what God tells you. Now, it's a great mercy to hear God speak. God would have good warrant for never speaking at all to man. Uh, one thing we did by sinning was that we cut off from ourselves any right to ever hear God speak to us again, except by way of judgment and mercy. That's what we did. And it's an amazing mercy that the Bible doesn't stop in a way right there with the fall and with hell as the next step. A succession of generations born and being swallowed into the bowels of a lost eternity. It's quite remarkable that the next intervention is God's speech by way of kindness and grace and a provision being made. 
And that has been preached in our hearing. And that is a wonderful mercy. And it's a wonderful privilege. And it's renewed to us every Lord's Day in a special way. And I suppose few of us really understand the privilege that is ours to gather and to hear the word of God speaking mercy to our souls which are in sin in a world that is saturated with sin and under the condemnation of God. We are actually hearing God speak terms of mercy and grace in connection with a saviour that we can't see and in connection with a heaven that we can't yet see either. So to see is to hear, or to begin to see is to hear the word of God. Faith comes by hearing. But seeing here means more than hearing. When Abraham saw the promises afar off, it doesn't just mean that he actually got the information about these things. It means that he understood it. That's very commonly the way that we use the word see anyway. For example, you tell me something and I say, well, <clears throat> I, I'm hearing you, but I don't understand. And you may tell me again and then I say, oh, I see. I see. In other words, I understand. I understand. And it's a wonderful thing, again, when the Bible doesn't just become a series of uh, messages or exp expositions that are spoken or preached in your hearing, but it becomes a consistent message. It becomes a message that is stamped with what I refer to in my prayer as the self-authentication of truth. The self-authenticating power of the Bible is a remarkable thing. By that I mean just the power of the Bible to speak for itself. And the power of the Bible, when it's let loose, to convince its hearers of the truth of the message that is preached. Uh, I've often said to people who try to argue sometimes with atheists that the, the best way to argue with an atheist is simply to bring them under the proclamation of the word of God. Just because the word of God has that self-authenticating power. When you try to argue to, with someone about God, it never seems it to get anywhere or it seems to just go round and round and round like that. But when you bring the atheist to a place where he actually hears God speak, whether that's in the book of God itself or in the proclamation of the book of God, there's a power annexed to that. There is the self-authenticating power of the word of God. How do we know it is the word of God? Well, it announces itself as the word of God. And it makes this profound impression deep down in your heart and in your conscience of it being the truth. It's so unlike man. It's so unlike man in the way that it moves, in the way that it speaks, in the power that it possesses. It's no wonder people debate the question, because normally people don't debate whether a, a, a document has a human author. But this so evidently does not. There is more than a man speaking from Genesis through to Revelation. So there is... The understanding of the word of God. It begins to make sense. The big picture begins to make sense. The original pure creation. The fall. The agony. The pain. The suffering. The intervention. Heaven. Hell. It all makes sense. When, when you take this big picture out of it. What is life? What is it? What is the world all about? What is society about? What is poetry about? What's philosophy about? What's love about? What's hate about? What's morality about? What's politics about? What's economics about? What's life about? What's death about? Do you know what your answer is to all that? If you're honest with yourself, you haven't a clue. The best you can say is that we all walk about in a vain show. That we have a moment here, a meaningless moment, and then we are gone and who knows what it's all about. In a few million years time the sun will cool and the earth will cool and all forms of civilization will cease. Supposedly the universe, as I mentioned to you before, will shrink back to the size of a pinhead 
Supposedly, again, it will blow out and become an expanding universe, and who knows if there'll be any living sentient creature in that one, until it again contracts and becomes a pinhead, and out it explodes again. That's all you've got. That's all you've got. And in a way, it's up to you whether you believe that or whether you believe this. And there's something more profound and majestic in the message of the scripture, the God that it brings before us, the godlikeness of the original man and woman, our fallen condition, and the godlikeness into which God brings us. There's something more true about that, something that reaches the inner core of your being, certainly in comparison with a never ending series of exploding pinheads which give no meaning to your life or to your death. It all begins to come together. But not just the big picture, but the central part of the big picture. It all hangs on a man, and it all hangs on a cross. And strangely enough, this is the thing that we find so difficult to see. We begin to see parts of the big picture before we begin to see the real integral part of it, the fulcrum, the point around which it all turns, the axis that forms the centre around which this whole world spins, The cross, where God becomes man to take the sin of man upon himself to enable man to return to God. What a story that is. It's no no wonder, as I refer to it in the book of Galatians, that we're spellbound by such a spell, by such a story. We begin to see it. We begin to see the glory of God in the provision of Christ a saviour, a holy saviour for for sinful men and women like you and like me. Now, in its fullest sense, I don't think anyone can really see this picture except those who are being converted. I'll say a little more about that in a moment, but because some people say, well, I, I believe all this. I'm not converted, by a, but I still believe all this. Maybe, like I say, I'll come to that, but you usually find that those who see the picture are those who are being brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But saving faith is more than seeing it. It's more than understanding it. It's obviously believing it. Because after all, the text tells us in connection with the promise that not only did they see them afar off, they were assured of them. That means that they believed these promises to actually be true. To actually be true. The full persuasion that God's word is true. Now, I just mentioned a second ago that there are some people who say, well, I actually believe everything that the Bible says. Does, does that make me a Christian? Well, I, I, I do have to caveat that by saying that I, I do actually doubt if there are people who really believe um, everything in the Bible, but who at the same time are not Christians. I'm only saying I doubt it. I'm not saying that I don't believe it, but I, I do really doubt it. Certainly it is quite possible to believe a lot of things that you still hate and you don't accept. Let me go back to the demons again. There's a lot of things that they believe, but they hate it with all their heart. They believe that God exists, but they hate him. They do believe that God rewards those who seek him, but they hate that. They hate that too. They're not believers. But the one thing I would impress upon you, and impress upon myself too, is is this, that even if you do see, you mustn't rest with seeing, you've got to make sure that you believe yourself. And not just with an intellectual faith. You've got to make sure that your faith goes way beyond what you understand and piece together in your head. Because you'll notice that you're not just persuaded of the truth of these things, the verse tells you that you must embrace them. Like Abraham did. Like Sarah did. They saw them They believed that they were true, and they embraced them. Now, this is the word I want to really focus on with you, because to my mind, it takes us to the heart of things. And you'll pardon the pun, because it takes us to the heart of things, because it actually takes us to the heart. 
Seeing something and believing it so far don't take us much really beyond the mind. But this word embrace takes us right beyond the mind and into the heart. And believe me, friends, or believe the Bible, saving faith involves the heart as much as the head. There's no saving faith without the heart being engaged. And that's why it says embraced the promises. You don't just believe the promises, but you embrace them. Now, the picture is beautiful in the Greek because the Greek word means just to greet, to go out and to passionately greet someone. And here the Bible tells us that you're greeting these promises, welcoming them. Now, I suppose that in itself tells us a few things. You're greeting them because, first of all, you see that they're personally for you. That's a vital part of saving faith. Saving faith engages you with the promises and the promises with you personally. So you don't sit back and say, well, I believe Christianity is true and I believe that people who believe experience this or experience that. All that is depersonalized. You can talk about that stuff in an armchair. And there are plenty of people who are content to talk about Christianity and to talk about faith and to talk about belief in an armchair. But that gets you nowhere. Saving faith means that you become personally engaged with it. And the reason that you greet these promises, as opposed to simply believing the promise, you can believe a philosophy, you can believe a political theory, but the reason you greet the promises of God is because you know they're important for you. You need the promises of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit has already come to convince you that you are a sinner, that you are lying under God's condemnation, and that there is no way in which you can extricate yourself from it. And again, you can't be saved without a knowledge of that. You've got to have that. You've got to have the knowledge that you need saving and that you cannot save yourself. And you embrace the promise because... It's for you. It's for you. And all of you who are Christians here today, unless you became Christians at a very, very young age, you will remember when this process took place, when the whole thing became personalized. God was speaking to you. You were the sinner. And God was the Savior. And even if you believed all that stuff before, well, it wasn't somehow for you. That fact may have worried you, or it may not have worried you. But in any case, it just wasn't for you. But now the conviction is there that it is for you. And as Martin Luther famously said, religion, true religion, is a religion of the personal pronoun. You have to say, my God, my Saviour. You have to say, my sin, my ruin, my lostness, my condemnation. But you need to be brought to say, my Saviour, my God, my promise, my heaven, my city, my, 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 and my. True religion is a religion of the possessive pronoun. It is mine. And you need this city that's being promised because you've discovered, as Bunyan said, that we live in the city of destruction. Man walks in a vain show, the psalmist says. Man absolutely does. Man builds his big cities. He always has. Since Genesis 10, when Babel was first built, and then the prominent cities of Assyria, man was at the centre, a tower reaching up heavenward, the central point for human civilization, and God's not in the picture. God brings all these cities and all these empires to nothing. He brings them to ruin. He allows some of them to rise again, perhaps on a better foundation, but if they move away from that foundation... He will bring it down again. Bunyan recognised that all these cities of the world, the cities that man builds, are cities of destruction. The world is a, a world of destruction and you need to get out of it. Because all who are in it, who don't divorce themselves from it, will perish with it. That's Paul's teaching in the letter to the Corinthians. That if you're in the world and if you're off the world, you'll die with the world. If you share its values, if you live according to its lifestyle, if you don't separate out from it in a clear, marked and distinct way, you will die and be destroyed. 
with the dying world when God sends his fire and judgment on it. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin and of judgment. And therefore you're glad to greet the promise of a saviour and of salvation that culminates in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's why the preaching of Christ transforms for you. I mean, the preaching of Christ is so different. Even when someone is somehow convinced that it's true, it's, it's so different for someone who hasn't been convicted of his sin and his need from, from what it is for someone who has been. Suddenly, the proclamation of the Lord is, is such a wonderful message. Here is God taking my nature, becoming a man, and experiencing all the pains and the miseries of this life, and all that's due to my sin, and suffering there for it on my behalf. You cannot have enough of the Lord and the Saviour being lifted up before you. Why? Because he is your Lord and your Saviour. If you don't know the difference between the Lord and the Saviour and your Lord and your Saviour, well, how can you be a believer? Because it's all about the fact that he's lived and died for you. That's why you welcome these promises. You welcome the gospel. You greet them personally. You greet them heartily. You greet them heartily. And you greet them exclusively too. What I mean by that is once you, once you embrace the promises that God gives you, um, there's, there's no space left for the promises that the world gives you. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't be a citizen of Babylon and a citizen of Jerusalem. I was mentioning at the wedding service last Thursday that these two cities have always been in conflict right through the Bible from Genesis onwards. Babylon and Jerusalem, always in conflict. Babylon, the city of Babel, means the city of confusion. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Man builds the city of confusion. God builds the city of peace. And, and once you embrace the God who is the king of the new Jerusalem, once you become a citizen of that country, once you're enrolled as a citizen of the new Jerusalem, you no longer have a citizenship in Babylon. Some people say that a Christian has dual citizenship on earth and in heaven. You absolutely do not have dual citizenship. That, that is a fundamental theological mistake. Your citizenship of this world is finished. It's over. You don't belong here anymore. You simply live here. You are a stranger in it. And you are a pilgrim. These two words are so important theologically. A stranger means you don't belong. A pilgrim means you're passing through. How, how more clear could it be than that? You don't belong in this world anymore. You are simply passing through it. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your king is in heaven. The country to which you now belong is in heaven. You don't belong here. That citizenship is scrapped. The world's actually disowned you. Not only have you left it, it has said farewell to you. You simply live in it. And you've got to make sure that you live in it with the attitude that Abraham had. Even, even in the promised land, he was always in a tent. He's always in a tent. You've got to remember the temporary nature of this world in which you're living. Tell yourself, if need be, every day I'm a stranger here and I'm only passing through. Uh, God in his grace and mercy uses experiences to remind us of that. One of the most dangerous things we can do is to start making this world our home and building our nest here and starting to live here as though this was our home. It's not. And in one way or another, the world should be able to see that in connection with us. I find it a very sta sad state of affairs when a Christian's lifestyle become, becomes almost indiscernible uh, from that of the world so that it's difficult for the world to look at these two people and say well they're very very different the world should recognize that one seems at home here and the other does not so to take basic things like what you do on the Lord's Day or where you are on the Wednesday evening the world knows that you're different 
If you choose to stay at home and watch a football team uh, playing in a game of football when the Lord's people are gathering at a prayer meeting, are you really surprised if the world thinks that maybe you're more at home in this world uh, than you would be in heaven? These things are basic. I don't have to explain these things. Common sense, really. should be common sense. And when you greet these promises, when you embrace them, in other words, you'll notice that what you immediately do is you begin to turn and change. It's as though you've been greeting the world and its places and its way of life, and you're suddenly attracted from a different direction, and you turn to embrace this. That means that you don't embrace that any longer. That's why embracing the promises means repentance, turning around, changing. To embrace God in his word is to let go of the world. That's why I made that very simple illustration of what happens to you on a Wednesday evening. For example, there are countless other illustrations which are just the same. And that repentance, although it streams from God, is your call. It's your decision. It's your activity. It's your choice. God always gives the heart to do it. He gives the will to do it, but doing it is your call. Perhaps one of the clearest examples of that is in the parable our Lord taught in connection with the prodigal son, who was brought to a place where he knew that his choices were useless choices. Thank God for that. He was brought to a place where he knew that his choices were useless choices. For long enough they seemed good choices, but he came to a place where they knew they were useless. But none of that would have availed had he not said, I will arise and go to my father. In fact, he may even have said to himself, oh, you know this, I was a fool to leave there in the first place. And the people who are there are better off than I am now. But even that knowledge and understanding would have been to no avail unless he had actually said, I will arise and go to my father. Let me go further and say that even that resolution is no use unless he got up and did it. Sometimes we're prone to think that because we recognize the need to make a resolution that we have done it. No, we have not done it. You've not done it until you do it. And you don't come to the Lord Jesus Christ until you come to the Lord Jesus Christ. By casting yourself on his mercy, by receiving his forgiveness, by taking his cross and following him. Do it. Not think about it. Don't even just rest content with knowing it's a good thing to do. Or even admiring someone else who did it. Do it yourself. And until you've done so, you have not got saving faith. It may be close, but it's not there. You've seen, you've persuaded, but you haven't properly embraced. The last thing, of course, that we're told to do is to confess. Because those who have seen and are persuaded and embrace end up confessing that they're strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. This confessing is actually almost part of the embracing. Let me put it this way. It's the outworking of embracing. Once you embrace God, there's an almost automatic nature to this confessing. Confessing is the outward evidence that you've really embraced. How, how do you know someone has embraced the gospel? Well, because they confess it now. What do you confess? Well, here you confess that you are a stranger and pilgrim upon the earth. I mean, that's, that's what the text says. Having seen them afar off, they were assured of them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims upon the earth. You confess that by the words you use and the life that you live. There's an expression in the letter to the Romans that tells us, and sometimes we stumble at this text, but we shouldn't really stumble at it. We're told, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart you believe to righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The focus there is on the mouth. But I remember, many of you will have known the Reverend Jack McLeod who passed away a few years ago. 
I remember talking to him once and he told me that, that, that the confession with the mouth is to be understood as the crowning part of the confession with the life. He said, in other words, it's not simply the heart and the mouth that are being brought together there. He says it's the heart and the outward life which finds its fullest expression in the mouth. In other words, what's brought together in the text is what you um, believing with the heart and a corresponding outward life, which includes what you say with your mouth. Part of that, friends, involves coming to the Lord's table. Does it not? When you come to the Lord's table, you identify with the Lord himself. You identify with the Lord's people. You declare that the Lord's table is now the table from which you eat, at which you wish to participate, not the tables and communions of the world. And it is a public statement. It's a statement to God and a statement to the church and a statement to the world that you believe in Christ's death and the power of Christ's death until he return. Now, as a, as a believer, sometimes you may indeed stumble or fall, but God will certainly keep you. Can I just say a word about that in conclu- conclusion in just a couple of minutes? I hope just literally a couple of minutes. I think it's worth saying here and emphasizing that once you embrace these promises of God, uh, you won't go back. Once you really embrace the promises of God. That's what uh, a writer called J.C. Philpot ma- meant once when he said uh, that once you love the truth of God, error will find no place in your heart. That was a very careful and precise statement. He didn't say once you believe the truth, error will find no place in your heart. He said once you love the truth, error will find no place in your heart. That is so, so true. Once you embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, you will not go back. Verse 15 Verse 14, those who say such things, that's those who confess that they're strangers and pilgrims, are declaring plainly that they seek a homeland. In other words, they're saying, I've got a fatherland and I'm going towards it. That's that's what the Greek word means there, fatherland. Truly, if they had called to mind Ur of the Chaldees, they would have had opportunity to return there. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. They don't go back because on their own side they say, you say as a Christian, well, what I've got is far better now. And it is. And on God's side, you've got the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. And you may say today, well, you know, I feel that maybe the only step that somehow seems to lie before me is to take this profession. You may say, but what if I fall and what if I fail? What if I bring disgrace on myself and what if I bring disgrace on others? What if I bring disgrace on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the more concerned you are about that, the more convinced I would be that you are a Christian. The more genuinely concerned you were for the honor of Christ and his church and his people, the more genuinely convinced I would be that you're a Christian. But as well as that, I would say this. The only assurance that you've got that you'll never fall is because God has said so. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you can't believe that, well, it gets hard to believe that you've got saving faith. That's just the way it goes. Because saving faith is just belief in what God says. Because God has said it. And if he has promised you that he will not leave you nor forsake you, that's the end of the discussion. And any failure to take a step having that promise means that maybe we don't really believe that God after all. But it's worth just finishing by saying this. When we embrace God, you can be absolutely sure that God is embracing you. When the prodigal son went back to God, it's a a wonderful truth that the father came and fell on his neck and kissed him. It's a wonderful truth. That's in the parable for a reason. Once you resolve to embrace God, be sure of it that God embraces you. And there's this just wonderful sentence in closing, which I find 
Honestly, one of the most remarkable and wonderful sentences in Scripture, at the end of verse 16, we're told that God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. I can think of a thousand reasons why God would be ashamed to be called my God. I can. I remember once hearing about someone who took their parent somewhere, and their parent was uh, much older than everyone else's parent and uh, looked very different, and they felt a bit awkward because the other children were bringing their parents and they just seemed to look so different, and they felt ashamed. And later on, this person felt ashamed that they had been ashamed because their parent was to them, he thought, really much more probably than any other parent was to them and felt ashamed that he had been ashamed. Um... I can think of genuine reasons why God would be ashamed to be associated with me. And I am sure you can think right now of many reasons why God could be ashamed of being called your God. Uh, God is your God. God, my God. Should God not be ashamed of that being public knowledge? No. No, he's not. He's not ashamed to be called your God. In fact, he prepared the city with you in view there's so much more that I should say so much more that could be said but uh, you can bring it all out yourselves may the Lord bless it to us and enable us to believe embrace and to confess to the glory of his name let us pray O Lord enable us to uh, cleave fast to what is promised knowing who has promised these things and that not one word which he has spoken will fall to the ground. How precious the things that the Lord has laid up in store for them that believe him. O grant us grace to live more and more as people who are passing through, and who delight on thinking of home. For after all, it is where we will be, in the company of brothers and sisters, and of our Father, and our elder brother, and when sinners are no more. In Christ's name, Amen. <clears throat> psalm uh, 73 is our closing psalm. I should, of course, have said in the intimations that we're back to the bridge centre uh, for worship uh, this evening. Psalm 73 at verse 23. Page 316, Nevertheless, continually, O Lord, I am with thee. And here's the promise, Thou dost me hold by my right hand, and still upholdest me. That's the promise being fulfilled. And here's the promise, That thou with thy counsel while I live, Wilt me conduct and guide, And to thy glory afterward. Receive me to abide. 23 to 26, let's stand to sing. The Yeah. Mm-hmm.
Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. <laughs>